You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here at Fellowship. And uh, if you are a guest with us this morning, I especially want to welcome you. Uh, you can relax. We're not going to ask you to stand up and do anything weird or anything like that. And so we just ask that you come and, and, and be open to hear from the Lord today and what he has for you through the preaching of his word. And uh, our hope as a church is that you will go from feeling like guests to feeling like family just as soon as possible. And so at the end of the service, if you're interested in getting more information about our church or getting connected, uh, Pastor Luke will come up and he will share with you uh, how you can do that. And so, um, again... Uh, welcome everyone, and if you're a guest, we especially want to welcome you. This is the last Sunday I'm going to be preaching for the next five weeks. Um, if you've been with us at Fellowship, you know that every... That's, it's always encouraging right before you preach when someone amens that you're not going to be preaching the next five weeks. Um, can always count on you, brother. Um, every July, I do give you a break from hearing me. And it gives me a break as well. I take off about, uh, basically, I get about an extra 10, 15 hours a week when I don't preach. And so in July, I'm not just going to be goofing off during that time. I'm really going to be using that as an opportunity to um, retreat with the Father, to listen to Jesus through his spirit, uh, to hear what he has for me, for our church in this new season of our life. And we plan, uh, as elders, we plan from August 2016 to August 2017. So it gives me a whole month to really plan and prepare and make sure our hearts are aligned, that I can understand the direction God has sent us in the next year of our lives. And so I would appreciate your prayers. I would also appreciate if we could have a crowd just like this next week. And so uh, we got a great lineup for you in July. Uh, Chris Bennett's going to be preaching, a friend of mine from Memphis, Tennessee. He's a pastor there at Renewal Church. Uh, their worship pastor, Jeremy Horn's actually on K-Love. I mean, just a great uh, guy, godly man. He's going to come preach the gospel next week. Um, after that, uh, we're going to have Robbie Fowler, a guy in our Jonesboro missional community. He's going to preach the word. Um, after that, it'll be Chuck Schwinn. Some of you know him. He's a pastor in Jones, real great friend. Um, then the week after that, Steve Gravarsi's coming back. For those of you who may know uh, Steve, he was in our church planning residency and uh, moved, off, uh, moved off to go plant a church. You're going to get to hear from him. And then the last week, I'm going to preach at a church in Conway, Arkansas, and their pastor's coming here to preach. And so it's another good friend of ours. And so you're going to get a variety of different guys all preaching the gospel. I promise uh, you're going to love it every single week. So be sure and be here. For that. Now, as for today, in my infinite wisdom, I thought it would be good for my last Sunday to talk about sex. Um, more specifically, I'm going to talk, um, basically, I'm just going to try to share a biblical understanding of sex and how, more specifically, how I think that informs how we should respond to the issue of homosexuality. And um, I know as soon as I say that, everyone just kind of like, you know, that kind of tightens up a little bit. Um, all week, I've sat there and thought, you know, if I preach this message, I run the risk of, one, being misunderstood, someone taking my motives and twisting them or whatever else. And also, I know I run the risk of offending people from both sides, from the traditional view that would say homosexuality is a sin and the affirming view that would say, no, it's actually not a sin. Um, I know those in the traditional side, some will sit here today and, and say, well, you didn't preach clear enough or hard enough. And some from the affirming, affirming side might say, well, actually, you preached too hard. And I get all of that. And because of that, I've been tempted to not preach on this uh, message this week. But, but here's why I want to do this. 
The issue of homosexuality has become a bigger and bigger uh, topic of debate in our culture, and it's not going to go away. And over the last four years, I have um, not preached on it for this reason, because I didn't want people to think that I was exalting it above anything else or putting it below anything else in the Scripture. So I've intentionally not preached on the issue. But what I want to do today is I want to be sure, and, and I want us to have a mature conversation about it from the Scripture so that you can draw your conclusions based off of God's Word, and at the very least, can begin to have mature, well-informed conversations about this issue, depending on whichever side you land on, okay? So if you're here today and you're like, man, I don't think this is a big enough issue to talk about, let's just do a little uh, participation thing here. If you are in the room, and don't raise your hand yet, wait till I finish my whole sentence. If you're in the room and you either uh, would consider yourself gay, lesbian, trans, whatever, or you know somebody who is, Okay, so maybe a friend, family member, co-worker, neighbor, acquaintance. If you're either gay or you know somebody who is, I want you to raise your hand. Okay, if you look around, that's pretty much everybody in the entire room, if not everybody in the entire room. So this topic, I think we can conclude, does affect everybody this morning. And as a pastor who will stand before God and give an account for what I teach to you, I think it's important to share what I believe God's word shares on the subject, okay? And so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. I want to pray one more time, and then we'll dive into the text. Father, I know that there are men and women in this room that are all over the map as far as sexuality goes. There are some in here who would say they're straight, some who are gay, some who are confused and don't really know where they line up here or there. And I just ask that right now through your Holy Spirit that you will be very gracious to us. Father, I've been reminded all week long that your law and your word is good. It is here not to rob our joy, but to lead us into life and life abundantly. We don't know how to find life, Father, in our natural self, and I just pray that you will open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to hear that, and that if we disagree, that we will still be able to disagree together as friends, as those who can work through this for our good and your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. So, Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. If you don't have a Bible, I think I can throw it on the screen for you, and I'm just going to warn you in advance this morning, uh, the, the message is going to be a little teachy, a little heady, uh, but I think that's absolutely necessary um, to ensure that we leave here informed, okay? So Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. So if you'd never read Genesis chapter 1, the Bible says that God created everything, the heavens and the earth. That's the Bible's way of saying God created everything from top down. Everything we see is here because God said it is going to be here. And then in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, God makes a declaration over his creation by saying that everything I have created is very good. Now the word for good here is a word that appeals to all of our senses. It's a word we would use to describe maybe the sound of our favorite album. 
right? Or the taste of our favorite steak. Or maybe it's a word we would use whenever we lay in a comfy bed after a really long and hard day. Or it's a word we would use to describe our favorite smell, whether it's the, you know, uh, fresh cut grass or your favorite fragrance or whatever. I don't know what it may be. But the point is, when God says his creation was very good, this is God's way of saying, everything that I have created is good in every possible way. And that tells us a whole lot about creation, but it tells us even more about our creator. And one of the things it tells us is that our creator, our God, is a good God. You need to hear that today. For some of you, you've grown up believing that God is some sort of celestial killjoy. That he's a God who's mad because humans have figured out how to have fun without him. And so he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to create laws to try to crush out that fun. Some of you truly, you believe that. Like, you believe that God is sitting in heaven, and the way his law was birthed and handed down to us, he was sitting there and saying, hmm, what sounds like fun? I know, having sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. Therefore, don't do that. Guys, nothing could be further from the truth. According to the scripture in places like 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul himself tells us that God, he says we are to put our hope in God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We in the religious South desperately need a theology of enjoyment. We need to realize that the God of the universe actually wants us to have pleasure. He does. And I don't have time to go into this more. If you want to read more about this from a theological standpoint, I would encourage you, buy the book, The Things of Earth, Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts by Joe Rigney. But here's the truth. When God created the world, He created it very good. And God Himself, the Bible says, enjoyed His creation. And as humans created in His image, He wants us also to enjoy His creation. That is why, if you think about it, think about this. God could have literally created the world any way he wanted to. Could he have not? I mean, any way he wanted. And when God creates Adam and Eve, notice this. He doesn't just place them in some dull box and say, here, live in this little cage, right? No, he gives them a universe with different shapes and sounds and colors. He gives them food for nourishment. And notice, again, God could have done this any way he wanted. He didn't say, you're going to be like a car. Whenever you get empty, you know, you just go to a gas station and fill yourself up with a nozzle. No, he gives us food, and he gives us taste buds. Thank you, Randy. I actually put it here. Randy will amen in this section. He then created sex. And he made sex pleasurable. Again, could have done it any way he wanted, right? Could have made us like animals. But he said, I want this to be a good and pleasurable act. I don't know. Some of you in here, your story may be like mine. Um, When I went to my bed with my wife on our wedding night, I did not go as a virgin. And maybe some of you, that's your story too. And you know there is a major difference. If you've had sex before marriage and then you've had sex within marriage, you know there's a major difference. I remember, and I'm not going to go into detail because my brother-in-law is here. And so that'd be weird to talk about. I mean, it'd be weird if I talked about it in detail, even if he wasn't here. But I mean, like, anyways, 
Like, so I remember on, our, on my wedding night, literally, after having sex with my wife, I remember laying in bed and thinking, this is, I'm, I'm not making this up, this was my exact thought. Everything we just did, God created it. That was God's idea, not my idea. Humans didn't make that up. God made that up. And in that moment, honestly, right there, I mean, my heart just began to explode with worship. As I began to, I just had the thought for the very first time that everything I just did, not only was worshipful to God, but absolutely so, so good. And, I, and, and in return, here's what I did. I didn't worship my wife in that moment. I worshiped the God who gave me that gift. Our God is a good God, and He gave us good sex. And we don't have to be ashamed of that or be like, oh, like I blush. Like what you need to realize is, listen, guys, according to the Bible, we were sexual before we were sinful. Do you realize that? Like before sin ever entered into the picture, God said, I am going to create a male with male parts. I'm going to create a female with female parts. And I'm going to bring them together in marriage so that they can actually have enjoyable sex that is for their good and ultimately my glory. This is what our God is like. If someone comes up to you and they say, well, I think your God's just about a bunch of rules and laws. Be like, yeah, he is. And the very first rule that he gives us is to have sex. And not wild, untamed, completely uncontrolled sex with whoever we want and whenever we want. But rather, what does God do in the scripture? He says, because this is such a good gift, I want to make sure that I'm giving it to you and that you open it within the right context. And what is that context? In Genesis chapter 2, excuse me, 2, verse 24, as we continue to read in the story, God says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, the word for one flesh here literally means to be fused together. What God is saying here is when you engage in sex with somebody else, literally, it's not just a physical act. There's something super spiritual about it and the fact that it's such an intimate um, act that you become connected in a way that is so intimate that it cannot be undone. That's what one flesh means. So what we need to hear then in light of that is sex is really good, but sex is also really powerful. And therefore, it should be handled with care. I've used this picture before. Sex is like fire. Fire in itself is not bad. When fire is within the boundaries of a fireplace, it can warm a house up. But if it moves out of the fireplace, it can burn a house down. That is the way sex is. And by the way, and we've probably seen this before. Have you ever, don't raise your hand, but have you ever seen the couple that clearly shouldn't be together? Like they've been dating for three or four or five years, and you're like, man, like they oppress each other, they're verbally abusive, or they just they seem to hate each other. Like, why are they still together after three or four or five years? They're terrible for each other. I would say because nine times out of ten, the reason why is because they've been having sex. And there's something super emotional and spiritually charged in the act of sex that God created to where you come together. It creates a bond that is incredibly hard to sever. And that is why they continue to stick together. And that is why God says in his word, sex should come after 
marriage. Now, what is it about marriage that needs to be the context for where sex takes place? And in short, I talked about marriage all last week. If you want to go back and hear that about biblically where we come from on marriage and our stance on marriage, you can listen to that podcast on the website or iTunes. But basically, in short, here's what the scripture says about marriage from start to finish. That marriage ultimately is between one man and one woman who is making one commitment to love one another no matter what. It is the only relationship in the world where you say to the other one, I am choosing to love you. I'm not just going to love you when I feel like it. I'm choosing to love you no matter what for the rest of our lives. Whether you're sick or you're healthy, right? I'm choosing to love you in, in, in richness or in poverty. Whether you're sagging or not sagging, right? Like I am choosing to give you my entire life no matter what happens. And what God says in the Bible is then and only then are you ready to give someone your entire body. According to scripture, sex is a physical symbol, a a tangible symbol of I am now doing to you with my body what I have already committed before God and man to do to you with my entire life. That is why sex is a bigger deal than any of us ever thought it was. And that is why, by God's design, the only container strong enough to hold this nuclear force is marriage between a man and a woman. Now, all that being said, obviously we don't live in the Garden of Eden anymore. All right, this is 2016, and we live around soybean fields. And because we no longer live in the Garden of Eden... Because Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they believed a lie about God, they chose to live their way rather than God's way. Now, what has happened with sexuality is we've tried to define for ourselves what it is and how we think we should use it. And so this gift given to us by God for our good and his glory now becomes something that we try to use in our way that we think will bring us gratification, but in the end only brings us more pain. And this is not new to 2016. We've seen this even throughout Scripture. And that is why if you flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to see that Paul is writing here to the Corinthian church. And basically what's happening is in the Corinthian church, they are beginning to be influenced more by the world than by God's word when it comes to sexuality. And so Paul's helping them think through this. And I want you to see what he says. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, or the adulterers, nor the men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. Notice what he says, notice what he does here in verse 12. In parentheses, he says, all things, or in quotations, sorry, all things are lawful for me, 
but not all things are helpful. Again, in quotations, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. What Paul is doing here is he's responding to one of their quotes. So he's saying, basically, you have said all things are lawful for me, but I'm telling you, not all things are helpful. You're saying all things are lawful for me, but I'm telling you, I will not be dominated by anything. And then hear it again. You have said food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food. But look what he says. And I tell you, God will destroy both one and another. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about here? Let me give you a little background real quick, and then we'll come back on, on the ground. What had happened in this moment is about 50 miles south in the city of Athens, there was this new belief that had really taken root and gained momentum, and it was a belief known as dualism. And basically, in a nutshell, here's what dualism taught, is there is a, a, a spiritual world and there's a physical world. The spiritual world matters. The physical world does not. Right? The physical world is just biological. There's nothing. There's not a big deal about it. And so therefore, because the physical world doesn't matter, you can do with your body whatever you want to do. Therefore, if you get hungry, you eat whatever you want whenever you want. If you get horny, you have sex with whoever you want, whenever you want. That is basically what dualism was teaching. And Paul says in here, that is wrong. What he says in here is your body does matter. God doesn't just care about your soul. He cares about every single bit of you, every fiber. Therefore, what Paul is saying in here is glorify God with your body. Use it in a way that honors him. And so in verse 10, he hits this list and he says, stop stealing from one another, right? Stop being greedy. Stop getting drunk. Stop abusing people and cheating them. And I have hit on all of those things multiple times. In verse 9, though, and as I said earlier, because we have not focused on this before in this setting, notice he does say clearly also, You should not engage in sexual immorality or practice homosexuality. Now listen very carefully. People from the traditional view, those who would say homosexuality is a sin, what they often will do is they will read a verse like this and go, case closed. There it is. Homosexuality is a sin. So if you have same-sex attraction, do not act on it or you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The end. We're done. The problem is with that, and this is the reason I actually chose this exact text, is people who claim to be gay and Christian and to follow the teachings of the Bible actually use this exact same text to prove that it's okay to be gay. And here's what they will say. Whenever we read in here that men shall not practice homosexuality, there are two different Greek words that Paul is using. And I think I can throw them on the screen for you. Can I throw those on the screen? Two different Greek words. There we go. Okay. The first word is malakoi. Now, that's a very easy word to translate. It means feminine or soft. The second word is a little bit more difficult to translate. It's the Greek word arsenikoitai. 
And the reason this is a difficult word for scholars to translate is because in its dominant form, arsenikoitai literally meant this, for older men to force younger boys to have sex with them. That's what it meant. And so those from the affirming side, what they do, and that is correct, by the way. Like, that is exactly what the dominant form of arsenikoitai means. When older men force a younger one to have sex with them. So it's almost like a pedophile-type relationship. What people from the homosexual community who would say, I'm gay and I'm Christian and I believe the Bible is okay with that, what they do is they look at this reading and they say, okay, well, anywhere else that we see the mention of homosexuality in the New Testament, clearly then it's talking about arsenikoita, this type of relationship between an older man forcing a younger boy to have sex with him. So what the conclusion then is, is that is not, when the Bible speaks against homosexuality, it is not speaking against whenever there is a monogamous relationship, loving relationship between one man and another man, or one woman and another woman. And what I'm just going to ask you is, if someone says that to you, how are you going to respond to that? Are you going to look at them and say, well, I just think you're an idiot. I just don't believe you. Or are you going to look and say, that sounds pretty convincing to me? Then, yeah, I would say I agree. I mean, you, how are you going to respond? And for me, as I read Scripture and I dive into it for myself, I say that I cannot respond in either way. And here's why. First, scholars will also tell us that if Paul wanted to use another word here to specifically and only speak of a older man forcing a younger boy to have sex, he could have used a totally different word. Also, what we see is the word arsenikoita. It's actually two different words that originated from the Septuagint. You see arson here and koitai here. These two different words actually come from Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. Arson from Leviticus 18, koitai from Leviticus 20, where God in the Septuagint clearly says that homosexuality of all forms absolutely is forbidden. And so where I line up, me, as a pastor who has dove into this and, and sought this for myself, is what I believe is happening here is the reason Paul uses this word and other, the, instead of the other word he could have used just to talk about older sex or older man forcing younger men to have sex. The reason I believe Paul used this is he was saying, look, there are some laws in the Old Testament that make no sense, no sense whatsoever in the New Testament. This, however, is not one of them. I believe that he is nodding to Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 24 reason to say this still is out of step with reality of how God created marriage and sexuality to work. Now, on top of that, if you're like, I'm still not convinced of that, Jared, that's fine. I'm just sharing with you from what I'm reading in Scripture. On top of that, the word that Paul uses in here for sexual immorality is actually the word pornania. It's where we get our word porn from. Scholars will tell us, all scholars from all sides, that this word porn is actually a junk drawer. Pornania is a junk drawer for any sort of sexual activity that happens outside of marriage as defined by God. And the biggest argument for me is then again, what is the way that God defines marriage? And as we talked about last week, guys, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2... 
God says literally to Adam and Eve, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now, why in the world would God say to Adam and Eve, leave your father and mother? They don't have an earthly father or mother. So why did God say that? Because it is a template for how all other marriages are to look throughout human history. You will not see anything different than that in Scripture. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul himself in the longest passage on marriage absolutely assumes that marriage is between one man and one woman. Jesus himself, who my gay friends who would say they're Christians would say, well, Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. Well, maybe not in a direct way, but I would say in an indirect way he does. In Mark chapter 10, can we put that on the screen? Verse 7 and following. Jesus is talking about divorce and marriage here, and here's what, here's what he says. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. He's quoting literally what we see in Genesis. And then let's keep going on. Verse 8, if we have it, okay. And the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Verse 9. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Verse 10. And in the house of his disciples... They came to him and they asked about this matter, and I just realized I actually need verse 11 in here as well. So let me just pull up my Bible, Mark chapter 10. The disciples asked him about this matter that he talked about with marriage, and then here's what Jesus responded to in verse 11. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery with her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, did Jesus come right out and say, well, homosexuality is a sin? No. But Jesus himself never redefined marriage. He never assumed it would be any other way other than between a man and a woman. And therefore, because of that, it is the same stance. And from my convictions, as I read in Scripture, I would say that's what marriage is meant to be. And that's what a relationship, a sexual relationship, is meant to be between one man, one woman for one life. Now, what in the world does all of that mean for us as a church? What does that mean for us? Here's what I would say, and I want to use this language intentionally, and I would encourage you to use this language as well if someone asks you, what is fellowship's stance on this? The language I used even this past week as I met with those from the LGBTQ community, and, and I asked them, if does that sound offensive? They're like, absolutely not. And so I think this is clear without sounding offensive. Fellowship Paragold is not a gay-affirming church, but we are a people-loving church. I spoke with a bisexual woman this past week who said, and I quote, Jared, if you tell your church that it's a sin to practice homosexuality, your church will not love homosexuals. Which I responded to, if that's true, then you can conclude that our church doesn't know the real Jesus. The real Jesus is a friend to sinners. And we all should clap because that includes us. Jesus ate with sinners. He drank with sinners. He ate meals in the homes of sinners. And he even asked them for help. Therefore, Fellowship Paragold, the same should be true 
of us. Does that mean that we cannot speak the truth? Absolutely not. And, and, and Luke is here. He will tell you whenever I was asked some pretty hard questions this past week by the LGBTQ community, I didn't dodge those questions. They come right out. Is homosexuality a sin? I didn't dodge that, did I, brother? We can speak the truth, but it should always be wrapped in love. You don't speak the truth in order to push your agenda. You speak the truth so that you think people can experience the life God has created them to experience. I talked to another girl this past week who said to me, Jared, when I came out of the closet, I didn't throw my faith away, but the church threw me away. What do you do with that? You just look and say, well, I'm sure that's her fault. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's in the Bible. It's a sin. And my gosh, I mean, what do you expect, woman? What do you do with that? What do you do with the fact that many in the LGBTQ community, whether for right or wrong or, or whether they read something in the news that was propaganda, whatever, what do you do with the fact that many of them feel like that they cannot come into a community like this unless they look like us, smell like us, act like us, and believe just like us? What do you do with that? I don't have all the answers, but I know this. If Fellowship Paragold is going to be a church where sinners like you and me can experience the life-changing, joy-filled salvation and satisfaction from the real Jesus, it will take three things. And I'm going to put it on the screen for you. It will take... Do we have it? The gospel? Plus... There it is. Safety plus time. Let me explain all three. Before you ever talk to anybody about their sexuality, how about you start with talking about Jesus? We should start with the gospel. And what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news for bad people like you and me through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the endless power of His Holy Spirit. The gospel is not clean yourself up the gospel is not, you have to do all this work for God. It's that, no, God has already done all the work necessary for you through Christ. This is the message, not just like gay people need to hear, we need to hear. Straight people. Black, white, young, old, rich, poor, we need the gospel. And if it ever becomes old news, you don't know what you have. The gospel is not something we move away from. We move deeper and deeper into it. And listen, is sexuality important? Yes. That's why I've been talking about it today. I'm not trying to waste your time. Is holiness important? Purity, is that important? Yes or no? Yes, but those things come after you are hit by wave upon wave upon wave of grace and truth according to the scriptures. We must be about the gospel. Second, safety. I talked with people this past week, and by the way, if you don't have any friends who are gay or lesbian, please stop acting like you know what they're going through. Please. I'm telling you, like that's done more damage than anything, I feel like, is the fact that oh, we know, we get it. Yeah, bro. Like, yeah, man, I want to have sex with whoever I want to. I'd like have sex with women. I don't do that, so I get you. No, you don't. You don't. I'm telling you, you don't. You're speaking in ignorance. Anyways, safety. Which it probably, doesn't, it probably doesn't seem like this is a safe place whenever I just said all that. <laughs> it's not a safe place if you're ignorant. No, I'm just kidding. 
safety. I'm just kidding. And those who know me know I'm kidding. That's why I can say that. Okay. So I talked with people this last week who literally, I had all sorts of stories, and I'll just share a few as example. One kid, 16 years old, comes out, tells his parents, I might be gay. He's grounded for six months and forced to copy the entire Bible before he can come out. I talked with a spouse that after being married for eight years came to a place where she felt like her desires for other women were so strong that she's either going to have to kill herself or get out of the marriage. She didn't know what to do with it. She had talked to other people. She finally goes to her husband and says, I think I'm gay. He's a minister, pins her up against the wall, shakes her and says, say you're not gay. Say you're not gay. She's like, okay, I'm not gay. Forget it. And like tries to live another year in it. Eventually checks out and is like, I'm done. I talked with other people who said that literally pastors laid hands on them to cast out the homosexual demon. Others who were sent to therapy by their pastors to be fixed. And all of this, according to them, was done in the name of Jesus. And I'm sure by some, let's show grace on both sides, was done with well intentions. They're probably doing the best they possibly know they can do. But all this did was push people away. Guys, if us, if we, and people from the LGBTQ community are going to experience the change that we need, we need a church that stands with a non-accusing posture. We need a church that rather than pointing our fingers, we open our arms. We need a church where people can come in and know that rather than receiving shame, they'll receive sympathy and understanding. We all need a church where being different doesn't mean you have to be embarrassed. We need a church of safety. Third, I would say we need time. Why do we need time? Because nobody changes quickly. Nobody. I spoke with a woman this last week that said to me, Jared, I'm sure I've heard great things about fellowship, and I'm sure that fellowship would receive me as I am. But if you're like any other church, I bet within five months, if I haven't changed, you'll kick me out. Guys, human beings are complicated. And complicated people need space to rethink their lives. The gospel confronts every single area. We need space to figure all of that out. We need a space where we can grow with no deadlines put on us. Of you have to be at this level by this point or you're out. This needs to be a place, guys, where we can grow at God's timing and not your timing and not my timing. Gospel plus safety plus time. I don't have all the answers, but I'm telling you, this is the culture I really believe it is going to take for you and me to encounter the real Jesus. And as a result, be conformed more and more into his image. Now, quickly, for some of you in here who have same-sex attraction or those who are listening by podcast, I want to be very clear this morning. First off, you are loved. You are loved by God. You are loved by me. You are loved by those in this church. Secondly, I want to say this. Your same-sex attraction is not 
a sin. Just as my temptation to lust after another woman is not a sin. Temptation in itself is not a sin. Am I clear on that? Acting on that desire, though, from what I see in Scripture, whether it's with our minds or our bodies, according to Scripture, is wrong. And therefore, what I want to say, if that's where you find yourself today, please hear me. That does not make you weird. It just makes you like every other sinner in the room. It means that you're in the same boat with all of the rest of us who stand in need of God's grace. And you know what the good news is? According to 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God's grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, my grace is sufficient. Or Paul here quoting God, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And look what Paul says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Do you know what that means today? You know what that verse means? All of us in here have things about ourselves that we hate. We all have things that we feel like are pulling us down or holding us back. And whatever that is, listen, according to this verse, that is the exact thing God wants to use to show to the world how strong he is through you. That thing, whatever it may be for you, whether it's same-sex attraction, whatever, that makes you at times feel like such a terrible person is the very thing I believe God wants to use to make much of himself through you. The thing that you believe creates only distance is the thing I believe God wants to use to create nearness. As you, in that weakness, whatever it may be, in that desire, run and take it to Christ. And find the healing and the joy and the satisfaction that you need. I met with several people this past week, I'm telling you, who would say, I have same-sex attraction and I am a follower of Jesus. If that is you, let me just encourage you to not assume that God does not want you to embrace celibacy. Just don't assume. That's all I'm asking. I've got a good friend, Kaleo, who is a deacon in one of our churches in Philadelphia, at Reality uh, Philadelphia. Up until three years ago, he identified as a woman, he dressed as a woman. And I talked to him on the phone just this past week, and what he said to me is, Jared, Jesus never had to convince me that homosexuality is a sin. He just had to convince me that he is God. And once I believe that Jesus is God, I said, whatever you tell me to do in your word, that is what I am going to do, no matter how difficult I think it may be, because I'm going to trust that you know better how to run my life than I do. Maybe some of you are in here, you're listening on podcasts, and you're like, well, good for Kyleo, good for him, that's great. Jared, what do you want me to do? You just want me to ignore my desires? Absolutely not. What I want you to do is to take your desires to Jesus and know that in your weakness, when you will run to him, you will discover the acceptance and the love that you are and we all are searching for. Maybe some of you in here, you're like, I'm not gay. I'm not lesbian. I don't struggle with this. So what's this have to do with me? We all have broken desires. I have broken desires. We all in here are sexual sinners. 
I am a sexual sinner. Jesus himself said, if you've ever had lust in your heart after another woman, you are guilty of adultery. And who in the world would say, I'm completely innocent of that? We all have desires. Maybe it's some of you are are addicted to pornography this morning. Maybe others, you're addicted to what others think of you. I don't know what it may be. But what I want you to hear is whatever desires you're having. Listen, guys, we're almost done. Whatever desires you have right now, they do not have to control you. And they certainly don't have to define you. And you've got to come to a place, and I'm talking to everybody here. I'm not just talking to people from LGBT, I'm everybody. You have got to come to a place where you say, okay, God, I want you to take it away. But if you don't, it doesn't mean I have to give in to it. Paul prayed, he said over and over that God would remove the thorn in the flesh, but he did not. We've got to learn that just because the desire is there does not mean that desire has to control us. In our weakness, we can run to him. And Paul says, when we do, we will be made strong. I pray that we never forget this. God, I pray that we never at fellowship become a church that we believe we're the church because we have it all together. I pray we realize, you know what makes us the church? is because we're a bunch of imperfect people who are standing in need of Jesus together. That's what makes us the church. And therefore, you know what? I pray that Jesus Christ will always be the hero of our story and that you and I together will throw our arms around each other and we will limp towards purity and glory together.